0: Part fifteen of The Secret of Everyday Things by Jean Henri Fabre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter forty two The Three States of Matter. A stone, a piece of wood, a bar of iron are objects more or less hard which offer resistance to the finger and can be grasped and handled. Cut or chiseled into any desired shape, they will retain that shape. On account of these properties we say of stone, wood, iron, and other substances that resemble them in this regard that they are solid substances. In everyday language this term solid is applied to any object that offers great resistance to rupture, to deformation. For example, we say, this piece of wood is solid, this iron hook is very solid. That is not the way the words should be understood in the present connection. I call solid any substance that can be grasped and handled any substance, in short, that keeps the shape given it. Thus, butter, tallow, moist clay, are plastic substances readily molded by the hand into any desired shape. We can grasp and handle them without difficulty, can fashion them as we please. In this sense, they are solid substances, no less than marble and iron, which are so resistant. "'That is easy to understand,' said Clare. "'Anything that can be handled,' even if softer than butter, is called solid. So water is not solid. For I can't take up a pinch of it in my fingers, as I do with sand. Neither can I shape some of it in the form of a nine-pin, for example, and stand it up. Or at least I can't unless I put it in a bottle. Golden Tongue could not have said it better. No, water is not solid. It slips through the hand that tries to hold it. It flows. Left to itself it has no shape and it is impossible to give it a definite one except by enclosing it in a vessel then it adapts itself to the form of the container taking its exact shape round if the vessel is round cubical if the vessel is a cube water and other substances that flow are called liquids then milk oil wine vinegar melted butter are all liquids says jules yes they are liquids the same as water now let us turn our attention to the steam that escapes from a boiling pot, or, if you like, to the beautiful plume of white vapour that comes in puffs from the smokestack of a locomotive as the latter moves along on the iron rails. You remember those magnificent puffs ascending in billows that remind one of the softest kind of swan's-down. I know what you mean, Emile hastened to reply. The engine puffs them out with a loud noise, like a person blowing with all his might. Well, those white puffs are steam from water, just like the white pus from the little boiling pot. This steam makes the locomotive move, and then, after it has done its work, it escapes with a loud noise into the air. Here we have another substance impossible to grasp, and this impossibility is greater even than in the case of water. Handling it is quite out of the question. Moreover, it expands in all directions, gaining in volume and occupying an increasing amount of space, On issuing from the smokestack, the puff of steam has a certain volume, not very large. Inside the engine it has still less, and that is precisely what gave it its force, for, like a spring that possesses more energy the more it is pressed down, steam owes its power to the fact of its confinement within a restricted space. Once set free, it gains more and more volume until at last it becomes so dispersed as to be invisible you must in fact have noticed that the white plume soon melts as it were in the air and disappears invisible though it thus becomes it is clear that this steam exists and that it belongs to a special class of material substances is not air itself intangible and invisible and yet can one doubt its materiality when as wind it is set in violent motion and makes the trees rock and sway or even tears them up by the roots Thus we perceive that there are substances characterized by an extreme thinness, the thinness of the air we breathe. These substances do not retain any fixed form like solids. They have no constant volume like liquids. They expand in all directions, and unless confined, occupy more and more space. They are called aeriform substances on account of their resembling to air. They are also known as gases and vapors. Air is a gas to this class belong also the invisible but pungent fumes of burning sulphur and the greenish substance of unbearable smell whose properties i describe to you in our talks on colouring matter and on ink in particular the first-named substance is sulphurous oxide useful in bleaching wool and silk the other is chlorine lastly the invisible steam from boiling water is also a kind of gas or rather a vapour for gas and vapour are very much alike and that kind of air full of something that comes from burning charcoal, that dangerous air that gives ironers a headache if they are not careful to keep their heaters under a chimney, that must be a gas, too. This query came from Clare. The deadly substance omitted by burning charcoal is in truth a gas, as invisible and as odorless as air itself. It is called carbonic oxide. Thus all substances, or, to use another term, all bodies assume one or other of the three different forms known as the three states of matter namely solid liquid and gaseous now the same substance can without changing its nature in the least become in turn solid liquid and gaseous according to circumstances it is mainly heat that affects these transformations heated to the requisite temperature certain solids become liquid with still more heat the liquid becomes a gas in losing heat on the other hand that is to say in cooling a gaseous body passes successively from the gaseous to the liquid state and from that to the solid the following example will show this more clearly than any mere description ice is a solid body many stones are no harder let us put it on the fire in a vessel it will melt in gaining heat it will become liquid water if this water in its turn is heated still more it will begin to boil and will pass off in vapor that is to say it will take the gaseous state here, then, we see water changing, under the action of heat, from the solid to the liquid state, and from the liquid to the gaseous. Most bodies are subject to similar changes. It is true that sometimes heat of extreme violence is needed. Thus iron will not melt unless subjected to the intense heat of the blast furnace, and to vaporize the smallest particle of it requires the most tremendous sort of fire that science can produce. And so with varying degrees of reluctance all elemental substances obey this common law. Heat first melts them, makes them become liquid, then volatilizes them, that is to say reduces them to vapor. What does cold do on its part? First take notice that cold has no real existence. It is not something opposed to heat. All bodies without exception contain heat, some more, some less, and we call them hot or cold, according to whether they are warmer or colder than we. Thus heat is everywhere, and cold is only a word that serves to designate the lesser degrees of heat. To cool a body is not to add cold to it, there being no such thing as cold. It is taking heat away. If a body gains heat it becomes warm. If it loses heat it turns cold. Well, then, the act of cooling, that is to say the withdrawal of heat, restores vaporous bodies to the liquid state, and liquids to the solid state. Thus the steam from the boiling pot, on coming in contact with the cold lid, loses its heat and turns to water again. And the vapor in our breath, when it touches a pane of glass becomes cold and runs down in fine drops water in its turn if sufficiently cooled turns to ice that is to say becomes solid other substances act in the same way a diminution of heat brings them back from the gaseous to the liquid state then from the liquid to the solid chapter forty three distillation by the action of heat liquids are vaporized and the vapor in its turn becomes liquid again on cooling. Suppose now there is a mixture of two liquids of which one turns to vapor more easily than the other. On the application of heat with the exercise of a little care, the more easily vaporized of these two liquids will be the first to evaporate, and if this vapor, instead of being allowed to escape into the air, is held confined in a cool receptacle, it will return to a liquid state. In this manner the two mingled liquids will be separated the one less easily vaporized remaining in the vessel used for heating them, the other being collected in another by itself. This operation of separating the two is called distillation. To fix this process well in mind, let us take an imaginary example. Let us suppose we have a quantity of water into which has been poured a considerable portion of ink. The liquid therefore is black, unfit for drinking, and unfit for any other purpose requiring the use of water. But who would ever dream of drinking water as dark as shoe-blacking, Claire interposed, or of using it to wash linen or cook vegetables? Nevertheless, let us see if there isn't some way to restore the water to its original purity, to separate it from the dark pigment in the ink and make it as clear and limpid as ever. Yes, there is a way. It is the method adopted in distillation. Water is easily vaporized, whereas the coloring matter in the ink is vaporized with extreme difficulty. If, then, we apply heat, the water alone will rise in the form of vapour, while the dark matter will remain behind. Thus heat will bring about a separation that at first seemed impossible. All we have to do now is confine the water vapour and cool it until it returns to the liquid form, and then the process is complete, and we shall have in one vessel perfectly clear water, in another turbid liquid containing the ink. "'If you had asked me,' said Claire, "'to separate the two, the water and the ink,' After they had once been mixed, I should have said it couldn't be done, and yet how easy it is! We heat the mixture and the separation takes place of itself. I should like to see this curious experiment. Nothing would be easier than to show it to you if we had the necessary apparatus. All that I can do at present is show you a picture here that will help to make the process clear. We put the darkened water into a glass vessel called a retort, which expands at one end into a large globular flask and at the other contracts into a long, tapering neck. The flask of the retort, when in action, is placed over a fire or flame. Can glass be used for boiling water, asked Jules? Certainly, if it is thin enough to expand uniformly when placed over the fire. The glass in this instance is of a quality that will bear heat if proper care is exercised in conducting the operation. Owing to its transparency, it affords a clear view of what takes place inside, a circumstance of great importance when we desire to follow the successive steps of an experiment the neck of the retort is inserted into another receptacle likewise of glass and globular in shape which is plunged into cold water if heat is applied beneath the flask the water contained in it is vaporized while the coloring matter is not this vapor as fast as it reaches the cooling receptacle immersed as the latter is in cold water loses its heat and returns to the liquid state Thus we obtain perfectly clear water, free from all traces of ink. Spring water is not clearer or purer. Indeed, it is less pure, as you will presently perceive. That's all very clever and interesting, observed Jules, to be able to get clear water out of a bottle of ink. But what's the good of it? No one would ever think of such a thing as blackening water with ink, just to turn it back into clear water by distilling it. Very true, was the reply. I chose that example in order to make the process more striking to you. But if it is not our practice to obtain pure water for daily use by distilling it from a mixture of ink and water, it is no unusual thing to distill ordinary water, and for this reason. However clear and good to drink water is in its natural state may be, it is never strictly pure. Whether it comes from a well, a spring, a river, or a lake, it has been in contact with the earth and consequently must contain, in however small a quantity— some of the soluble constituents of the soil. Would not water be salt if it ran over a bed of salt? And would it not be sweet if it ran over a bed of sugar? In like matter, water that washes the soil is charged with the numberless soluble substances contained therein. Who has not noticed the earthly deposit left in course of time by even the best waters on the inside of bottles and pitchers and, in a still more marked degree, of water-pipes? What is this deposit?' except an incrustation gradually formed by the foreign substances dissolved in the water. No water, then, that comes in contact with the soil is pure, in the strict sense of that word. Rain water, even when collected before it has reached the earth or washed the roofs of houses, is nevertheless impure, for it contains particles of dust swept down in its descent. I leave out of the account muddy water that owes its turbid condition to pelting rain or driving storm, also sea water, with its inevitable mixture of salt and its repulsiveness to the taste. suffices to say that all water in its natural state, and containing however slight an admixture of foreign substances, is unfit for certain manufacturing purposes, for example certain delicate operations in dyeing. Very often water may be most excellent for drinking, exactly suited to domestic uses, so irreproachably clear that the sharpest eye can detect in it no alien substance whatever and yet for such purposes as those I have indicated it may be worthless. To give water the purity required in certain of the arts, it is customary to distill it, not with an apparatus of glass, such as we use for a simple experiment, like the one we have just been considering, but with a more substantial, more capacious outfit. The water to be purified is poured into a copper boiler, or cusurbit, as it is variously called, which is sometimes provided with a hot-water jacket, and sometimes is placed directly over the fire. The steam ascends to a sort of dome, or head, surmounting the boiler, and thence by a long neck, called the rostrum, or beak, it reaches a metal tube coiled in a spiral and hence known as the worm. This latter is immersed in cold water contained in what is called the refrigerator. In circulating through the worm, the vapor becomes chilled and is condensed into water, which runs out at the lower and free end of the worm, and the latter passing through the side of the refrigerator at its base it is plain that the water in the refrigerator must gradually become heated by the steam circulating in the worm and thus be rendered unfit for condensing purposes hence it must be renewed from moment to moment and this renewal is in fact made to go on continuously fresh water is run into the funnel shown in the picture as reaching to the bottom of the refrigerator while the warm water being lighter than the cold rises to the top and runs out through the tube as shown Thus there is a constant renewal of cold water at the bottom of the refrigerator, with an equal outflow of warm water at the top. At the end of the operation there is found in the bottom of the boiler a muddy paste representing the impurities contained in the water subjected to distillation. Nothing is more disagreeable than to gulp down by accident a mouthful of sea water, nor is this water any better for washing linen than for drinking, since it will not dissolve soap, and is essentially unsuited for purposes of cooking but by being distilled the water of the ocean, so unfit for our use in its natural state, becomes purified. Great ocean steamers are provided with distilling apparatus in which sea-water is freed from its salt, and the resulting liquid differs not a particle from that obtained by distilling fresh water. It is suitable for cooking and washing, but not the best kind of water to drink, because it holds in solution no air, a little of which is needed in all drinking water." But it can be made to absorb the lacking ingredient by being shaken up in contact with the air. End of part fifteen.